0: You are about to get on a ride of scripture here. It's incredible. As much as I say there's going to be a lot of scripture, I'm not apologizing that there's a lot of scripture because it it is, is going to read it at, uh, in fifth gear. It really is. Okay, so let me pray for me, and we'll jump in this. Lord Jesus, please, Lord, speak through me. Um, let our ears listen and our hearts just receive your word. Don't let me be a distraction, please, Lord. Let um, really just speak through me as an empty vessel that... The words will come out right in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> so, if you go to First Samuel chapter four, give you a quick, quick review in case you're brand new walking in here. We have been walking through a high priest. His name is Eli, a high priest who uh, had two sons. Eli is up in age. Two sons that became morally corrupt. Uh, they began engaging with some of the women at the temple. They were taking offerings and sacrifices that were meant from God. Uh, they were priests and so their father Eli was a priest God spoke and said Eli correct your sons they're taking from my people they're 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 usurping the 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 reign of being a priest Eli goes up and just gives a half-hearted disciplinary action and said you shouldn't be doing this that's it that's all he does the reality is uh, punishment falls down on Eli and the two sons. God says in a very powerful way, and if you were here two weeks ago, you remember what we said. He said in a very powerful way, I'm going to smite your family and you are going to, your sons will die on the same day. You will know the pain of death. I mean, God spoken in, in, in a very clear way. And then months went on, a good time matter went on, and God reminded through Samuel he spoke to Samuel said go by the way tell Eli don't forget what's going to happen i mean god was incredibly upset and again why did god do that why was this a god of judgment because of you because he was preparing a place For you. Let's say you have a small child and you've entrusted, you've had to entrust that child to someone's care. You know how firm you would be if you found out somebody was doing something against that child. The love that you have for the child, the love that God has for his children, is very powerful. So, Where are we at now? Everybody's getting older. Some time has gone on. And there is a group of people coming in very, very soon called the Philistines. The Philistines are going to be involved in this. There's going to be some warfare involved in this. The hero of the story today... The object of the story today is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of God. It's what they call the presence of God. What is the Ark? It is, you think of Indiana Jones, when you think of the Ark, I know your mind's going right there. It looks very similar. It's made of acacia wood, painted gold. It's four foot long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet deep. Inside of there, the two tablets of the law. The the rod of Aaron. There is a pot of manna in there, or um, uh, there's... um, it's to be carried on these uh on these these uh poles there's a gold solid gold seat on top it was built by moses the ark of the lord is referenced 200 times in scripture 35 of those times in these four chapters this ark is something that represents the presence of God. It was constructed by Moses. It was to be stored in a tabernacle in what they called the Holy of Holies. It was hidden by the temple veil. It was only seen by a, one priest on one day called the Day of Atonement each year. This was a big deal. This represented, this was a place when God said to Moses, I want a place that I can come and fellowship with you. He would sit at the at the mercy seat and speak. And this was incredibly huge. This was the treasure of all of Israel. And when you think about what's about to happen to it, when you think about what's gonna, how the people are gonna misunderstand it, it's gonna give us some application in our life. There's a verse in Exodus 25, verse 22, that reads this way. It says, "'There I will meet with you, "'and from above the mercy seat, "'from between the two cherubim "'that are on the ark of the testimony, "'I will speak with you about all that I will give you "'in commandment for the people of Israel.'" This is God saying this. And by the way, the cherubims, were also they, they were carved out of gold, uh these, these these small angels. And so you have a kind of an understanding of what the ark is. You got a visual? Everybody good? We're jumping in. Here we are. A lot of verses coming up. Hang in there. This is my I get more excited over doing this than I do anything else in life is walking through verses and kind of hoping they jump out alive. Here we are. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of the Lord uh, or the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Um, that's kind of, by the way, a leftover from chapter 3. Remember, these are man-made divisions, chapters and verses. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, um, let me go ahead and read verse four. Actually, uh, verse four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from the Ark of the Covenant the Lord of hosts. And who's enthroned on the cherubim. the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember, Eli's the the was the high priest, right? His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Who are these Philistines? Where are they from? What are they doing? The Philistines are a seagoing people. They were a maritime group of people. They were, they were tradesmen who operated ships. They were from the Aegean Sea. They Primarily came out of Crete, and these people invaded the Middle East. The Philistines would hit, and you're going to read throughout the Bible where Israel is always going to battle against the Philistines. Everybody went to battle against the Philistines. Why? Because the Philistines had invaded. And so they're drawn up in a line of battle. When we get to David and Goliath, we'll talk a little bit about what that means to be lined up. They would have lined up for days to be looking at each other and engaging in negotiations to determine whether they wanted to come out. And did you really want to fight? Did you really want to engage? And so the line of battle lined up. And sure enough, negotiations must have failed. They went to battle. 4,000 men fell. The Philistines were a very uh, advanced people group. They were the first group of all world study and culture that we know of that developed the use of iron. Iron would be used in in weaponry. Up to this point, you can imagine it was uh, it was a lot of glass shards. There was it was wood. In this case, the Philistines, when they enacted warfare on people, did so with deadly force. Israel lost four thousand men. This is not a big country. That's four thousand dead. Historically, if you look back at primitive battles like this, you can take an average of three and four times the dead and make and extrapolate that into the wounded category. Is this army is limping back? 4,000 less men than went with, and conservatively, 10,000 wounded men, wounded by weaponry they had never seen before. It comes back, they call upon everybody, bring out the ark, get the ark. The ark has got us across the Jordan. It's got us so so many different places. Bring it out, let's move it forward. Look at verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout Let's stop right here. Think, keep in mind, the Philistines are scared to death of the ark in the Israeli camp. Why? Because they've heard the stories. Did you notice they're saying, not they brought out their God, they brought out one of their gods? Did you notice that? This is the Philistines believed in many gods. And you're going to see that in just a minute and what they're going to try to do with the ark. And so they're looking out and seeing, they can hear the victory. Card. Keep in mind, they just wiped out. The Israeli army. They're back in their place, and now the Philistines are intimidated. Why, why is this defeated army cheering? And then their lookouts tell them they brought the Ark of the Covenant out. And they have heard legends, stories, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. What does this mean? The Philistines now are afraid. And then look at verse 9. It says, finally, some leaders look at him and say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. This is an act of desperation. Folks, You ever hear me say, whatever's going to come through that door, men, don't forget that you're men. You're probably going to level, escalate your level of concern very quickly to wonder what's happened. This is a cry of desperation to say, don't forget who you are, be men, ignore the cries, ignore the sight of that ark, and let's go. What happens? Verse 10. So the Philistines fought. And you'd never guess, these next few words, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. Watch the slaughter here. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, you had a loss at 4,000 men? Big. You've now lost 30,000 men. Why do we think the number grew? It's probably because other people heard in Israeli towns, in, in, in villages, the Ark of the Covenant's going. There's no way we're going to lose. The ranks of the army swelled, and this time 30,000 men died. The Ark of the Covenant was then taken by the Philistines. You have these people take this, and then by the way, those two sons, fulfilling God's prophecy, right, Phineas and Hopti, they died on the same day. I cannot imagine the defensive measures of what was falling and how things were going to get to the ark. The ark surely was not put in the front. It wasn't done that way in a in a in a field of battle. It was taken, it was taken with leadership, priests were around it. This you would have had levels of um of uh your your spearmen your infantrymen your archers would have been overrun and then finally at the ark would have been defended by a core of temple guards that would have been there and more than likely it can only deduct that these two priests were there as well and they were killed at the defense of the ark so you're talking hand-to-hand combat incredibly brutal picture and the ark was taken verse 12 a man of benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled before the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is the uproar? Now keep in mind, um, this picture of this, the runner has been sent from the battle line. He gets to Eli The runner, by the way, that is his assignment... You remember um, the Battle of Marathon. There was a man who ran 26 miles. Where we get the word marathon. There was a runner who said, run back to the Greek town and tell him victory. He collapses. Nike, victory, and since the Battle of Marathon is now a 26-mile run. This would have been a battle runner. This is what they would do. Run to the archers. Run to the, we need reinforcements. So this battle runner was sent, and he was running. He runs an incredible distance. He gets to the father of, his, of, the, of the two priests, Eli, and he gives him this news. And he says, um, uh, and the people that are crying out when they're hearing what's happening. Verse 14, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, and by the way, how bad the outcry would have been hearing 30,000 men died, he said, what is the uproar? The man hurried and came and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He brought the news and answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For the man was, for, uh, the, for the man was old and heavy and he judged Israel for 40 years. This man was, in, uh, was sitting in a place where he probably could have had a heart attack, who knows what. Falls, breaks his neck at the news. It, this scene is horrible. Imagine the cry of hearing... Uh, Tampa, who has a population of one-third of what Israel would have had at the time, imagine us getting the word that if you take up those numbers and you were to come out and say, in Tampa Bay there's been 90,000 deaths, maybe 100-and-something thousand wounded, and we've lost everything, we've lost the very core of who we are. Imagine the weeping, imagine the mourning, and imagine this man getting this news, and imagine hearing this news over what's happened. If that's not bad enough, Phineas, his daughter, has a baby. Has a baby. The baby's born and she gives it a name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And then she dies. You talk about a dark cloud that's hit. You talk about a place that's absolutely desperate. You think about this the ark was substance but it was very real God would dwell on that you could effectively say our God the presence of our God has been kidnapped by unbelievers when it says the ark has been stolen has been captured don't let that fall gently on your ears chapter 5 when the Philistines capture the ark of God They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Who is Dagon? What is Dagon? Dagon is a statue. It is a statue. The Philistines, this was their ultimate God. Remember, they believed in many gods. Their original ultimate God would look like a fish. This fish now looking thing now has iron scepters and also has wheat in its hands. Because now they're a land people. And so, interesting. If you're sitting there thinking, is this weird? Like, they're creating this God consistently. It gets weirder than that in just a minute. And so some people have made their this this God exactly what they want to look like. So they take this Ark of the Covenant. Let's put it in, right in front of Dagon. And it can worship Dagon. That's what they're saying. Well, what happens? Um... Verse 3, and the people with Ashdod rose early the next day. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on uh, on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So they put him up. He falls down, prostrate, right, Like just like, here I am, like, almost like worshiping the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, and so they go in there, unearth it, put put Dagon back in his place, they go, the next day, he's fallen, his head's chopped off from the threshold, arms are gone, it's just a trunk of who he is, and if that isn't enough to kind of rattle you look at their response in verse 5 this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod did this they blamed it on the threshold like, this is a pretty dangerous threshold right here you don't want to walk on this thing they're kind of clueless and so they still don't know what's going on verse 6 the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod there, there, by the way there are five Philistinian Philistine warlords they called them Philistinian lords There are five major cities. And what's about to happen in this city is calamity. Um, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. When the men of Ashdod heard how things were going, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon and our God. So they went and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What do we do with this ark of Israel? They answered, "Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath." So they brought the ark of the god of, of the God of Israel there. So that's obviously a fix, right? These are a superstitious people. I forgot to mention that. The Philistines or Philistines are so superstitious. They are, they are, um, that's why they freaked out over the Ark, of the, God, of, of the Ark of the Covenant when they saw it brought out. They, they, they're like, oh no, this is not good. This is a terrible sign. Those people get it. They had no idea the power of God. So when all this happens, they think it's superstition. Oh man, our statue broke twice. Um, it fell twice. It broke once. Move this thing out. People are afflicted. People aren't feeling good. People are starting to get, starting to look funny. Get this thing out of here. And so they move it, and then they, uh, verse 9, but after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city. Remember, this is Gath now. Causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. This is the third city, by the way. Tumors are breaking out on people. They sent it to Ekron, but as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought us around to the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. People, you got to remember this. The network of communication in primitive areas was incredibly effective. You talk about, you want to spread a rumor? You don't need social media. You can whip a rumor around with one long tongue quicker than anything. And here in this place, villages are sending out, like, have you seen what happened to, you know, Robbie back in Gath? And God, I mean, have you seen the tumors grow? And I, I'm not going to, like, most of the, you know, not to say it is it, um, biblically, I, folks, I couldn't say this earlier, so we have a lot of kids. It's like, these are, uh, scripturally, I'm not making this up, and I'm not trying to make light of, I'm not trying to joke or be cheap. These are hemorrhoidal tumors that's painful, I can't imagine these people are in agony you talk about, what, I want to give you the picture when they're saying they're crying you know they're crying and now the third city has just gotten wind this ark is coming their way and they look at they look like, what? there are plagues of rats out there there are plagues, There are people can't walk correctly people have faces no, get that thing away they're looking at the Philistine lord it's like, no you can't do this This ark is traveling over a seven-month period of time. And Philistinians are going, get this thing out of here. We don't want it. Who are... The land of Philistine, by the way, are they still around? They're gone. There is no people group left. You're going to see them later. They would be in what they call the area where the Palestinians call Palestine. So... By the way, a little side note, if anybody ever says, well, this is not Israel, or this is Palestine, or this is whatever, understand something, there has never been, there is always someone even, remember the Philistines invaded, so those who would say that we're Palestinian and we want to relate to the Philistines, just understand there's a lot of intricacies here. The land exchange and turmoil in this area is incredibly heavy. So... What happens? Verse 11, They sent therefore and gathered people of all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place and it may not kill us and our people for there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did, who did not die were struck with tumors <clears throat> and the cry of the city went up to heaven. When you see on here the cry of the city went up to heaven, the writer is basically saying, there has been never a louder cry in the history of man than what's going on. That is the agony and turmoil of people. The fear, the physical pain, and the overwhelming sense of what is an early nubonic plague of a plague of rats. Seven months of this... Three towns having been ravaged, get this ark out of here. They call in the Philistine priest, what do we do? Now you're going to bring in a bunch of religiously superstitious superstars who are going to make up something to say. What do you do? Well, here it is. Verse, uh, or chapter six, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. The Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, what do we do with this ark of the Lord? Tell us what we should do, how we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. By all means, return to him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed. It'll be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is this guilt offering that we shall return to him? You ready for this? They answered, five golden tumors, five golden mice according to the numbers of the lords of the Philistines for the same plague was on you all and your lords. Yeah, you're reading that right. Go out, fashion a gold tumor, get some get some I'd like to be a model for that one, right? Get some rats, gold rats, man, and let's send it off. And let's thank them. Now, um, Verse five, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. And then they say this, verse six, check out this verse. Listen to how they quote Hebrew law. Here it is. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he dealt severely with them? And they did not send their people away, and they departed. These Philistine priests are saying, let's beg to the Israelis. Hey, remember, like, Pharaoh, his heart was hard, the Egyptians are... Don't be like that. I mean, you talk about manipulation, you talk about desperation. Folks, this has been a disaster of seven months. Get this ark out of here. We'll apologize in any way. Whenever you read the Old Testament, there's a tendency, if you're not careful, to read it and say, is God just a God of judgment? Is God so evil that he just, I mean, he smites people here, he smites people here. Remember, there's always a reason for what he's doing. Secondly, there are areas of grace and mercy. Do you realize what he could have done to anyone who touched that ark? And what he has done? Kill them on the spot. The very fact that these Philistines were bopping this thing around like a cue ball on a pool table and saying, Here it is, you take it, here it is, you take it, here it is, you take it. You talk about mercy, that is God executing mercy. Remember how they lost the battle. The ark wasn't just ineffective, they lost it because they decided to fight in a pattern in which God told them not to fight. He said, If you ever fight, I want you to do this. I want you to confess your sins, I want you to acknowledge your ways, walk in a way of humility, and acknowledge that I am God. And then take the ark. What did they do? Grab the ark, send it out that way. Don't confess. Don't acknowledge. Don't, don't bring up the power of God. They used the ark as a the, as bad as the Philistines were. Israel was worse. Israel knew the power of the ark. Would they use it as a good luck charm? I collect memory, uh, memorabilia from all different wars. I have a, a Nazi belt buckle that says this. You ready? God with us. Every Nazi soldier that marched in World War II wore a belt buckle that said, God with us. You think God was with the Nazis? No. But yet the mindset was, hey, we can take this anywhere we want to go. God's with us. It was, since it was used as, it, it's, we say the same thing in America if we're not careful. Think about this. We say superstitiously, in God we trust. In God we trust, but you know as well as I do, you, you and I individually go home and don't trust God for all of our pains and our, and our problems. We don't. It's what happens, we, if we're not careful, utilize God as equivalent to a good luck charm. Walking around and thinking, God's going to fix it just because we utter the words. This is like, it, this would be as equivalent, to, you look at the Amish society that says they're saved based on the fact of, 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 works. The Hutterite society, same thing. They have to do this. They have to dress this way. They have to work this way. They have to do these things. In order. Folks, that's superstition. That is tradition. That is not the the power of God. You and I, we have to talk continually. We need to break tradition from ever getting in the way of us and the Holy Lord. I guarantee you, when Arun goes to South Sudan, he will not see the same traditions we do. And if that church ever flourishes, they'll put up traditions that are in a bad way as well. We have to watch ourselves to make sure we are not, have not become a society based on tradition. The South, I'm a Southerner, I love the South, but I'm afraid the Bible Belt has become a big place of tradition, right? You know, jam it up in a country song, you know, like, yeah, we love singing this, and then, by the way, debauchery by by midnight, you know, like, well, yeah, I'm a believer. You go, the hardest churches to to minister, the hardest people to group to hit are Alabama, Tennessee, you name it. You go through there because everybody thinks I got it. Oh, no, I'm good. Mama's a Christian. Mama's baptized in a, in a, in a creek. I'm, yeah, here I am. I, yeah, I go to church on... No, it's a relationship. And the power in that relationship. The power in the ark of the God was meant to this. For God to commune with the people. And for them to see the power of God. Not to use it as a toy. Not to use it as a tool. And so here, in this place, the priests are saying, send this thing back. weird. I mean, the the gold tumors, gold rats, that was not God speaking. That was unbelieving religious people saying, send this back. How are they going to send it back? What kind of vessel? How are they going to get it there? Watch this one. Verse 7. Now then, take and prepare. If ever you dissected, and if ever I should have underlined some things, I should have done this. Take a, a new cart. Let me stop right here. You're at the state fair. you're about to <laughs> mock it have fun with this, make a fun bet on on a on a cart race. You bring up oxen that have trained together on an established cart, on an established load, in an established lane. And now, look at, would you ever bet on this particular method of delivery, ready? Now then take and prepare a new cart to milk cows on which there is never come a yoke, yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord, place it on a cart, put it in a box, as its side the figures of gold, which you return to them as a guilt offering, then send it off, let it go on its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who's done this to us, this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. And it happened to us by coincidence. And so, verse 10, the men did so. Took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart, the box of the golden mice, and images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, and that along the highway, lowing as they went, they turned neither to the right or the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border. Now, um... You never put two milk cows. You don't put two females on an ox. You don't put them there that have never been trained together or yoked together, especially on a new cart. They wouldn't know how to pull. They wouldn't know how to do anything together because one's going to be stronger than the other. They don't know how to work in tandem. Oh, and by the way, you're taking their calves away. They went along lowing the whole time, like calling for their calves and moving, but never wavered from the to the right or to the left and kept going. All I know is, is God did it. How he did it, I don't, I don't know how he works in the realm of, of angels to be able to, for an angel just to grab it and say, follow me. I don't know the power but other than this uh, not only has inspired scripture said it, the written word historical word of other cultures have mentioned this the Philistines were hoping by the way they were st- greedy they wanted this thing to falter and not go why give up all this gold? Why give this up? Go back, convince the people that, no, it worked. It didn't, it it really wasn't God. It was just a freak superstition. A superstition to break the superstition. That'll work. Did you notice the Philistines followed it all the way to the land of, of Israel? They were hoping this sucker would Stop. It never stopped. It plowed through. Some workers are in the field. They're plowing away. Here comes these two cows carrying this thing with the cherubims popping out. Good grief. It's the, it's the ark. Run and tell somebody. They do. And we see that, uh, verse 14, the cart came to the field of Joshua by Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A Great stone was there. And they split up the wood in the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering the Lord. By the way, um, they broke Levitical law. I don't think God mind anything. You only, only act, uh, your act of sacrifice was always a male animal. So you wouldn't have sacrificed a female animal. But anyway, the people were ecstatic. They got the ark back. And here we start to see something. Before we close, we see this. That this ark has been returned. It's the power of God that is represented in that ark. The power of God is represented in your life is through scripture, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, you know, uh, through prayer. What have you done and what have I done to negate it? Think about that. What have you done to make it a good luck charm? The most dangerous messages I've ever preached, I preached on my own strength. When I got up here and I knew that scripture. And it came out as Babble. Because I didn't come in with a, with a heart to deliver it. So, the reality is, Scripture unfolds. You know, um, some of your weddings I've had a chance to officiate, and I've always, always, I, you know, I, I joke with you all the time because I bring up certain verses I can't get away from. And there's a verse, there's a verse in Corinthians that opened up to me, well, really opened up to me this week. You know, you've heard those verses in Corinthians about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. I mean, I always talk about love. That's you and me. That's love. That's that's us. Love means this. Love means going beyond what's right. You can be perfect. Doesn't mean you're godly. You can be absolutely right in an argument. Doesn't mean you're godly. Because why? Love is patient and it's kind. So I had a friend in... This friend had a discussion with someone, and his friend admitted they were wrong in how they delivered it. said, I was right, but I delivered it wrongly, and I'm sorry. And it fixed that. You know, the next verse, verse after love is patient, love is kind is love celebrates in righteousness. It does not celebrate in unrighteousness. And what I figured out that person, what they're doing is they were living scripture to basically go back and say this, even if I mess up love, I can still honor love by going and acknowledging what I did was wrong. I can go back and say, I'm sorry. That is the power of godly love. The power that God has in Israel is Israel is saying this, God, we have the ark back and now we get it. And we're sorry. And then God tells the people, how about this one? You ready? Go back to battle. What? We're decimated. Our ranks are decimated. It's it's an advanced enemy. Even though we have the ark back, we've seen what happened. And just before the battle, in what scripture calls a thunderous activity in chapter 7, the Philistines were struck with fear and retreated. And God won. Oftentimes we look at things like this and we think these are biblical miracles. These are miracles relegated to scripture. God still moves in amazing ways. He moves in amazing ways in hospital beds. We see he moves in amazing ways in people's hearts for redemption, forgiveness, and the sweet spirit. But God moves in such big ways. And I'm not trying to tie this into the people of Israel um, to say that, salvation salvation's not to the people of Israel, but people of Israel were God's chosen people. And if you look back in time, short history story. You were to go in nineteen thirty nine, walk through Europe, and go from Warsaw to Berlin to any other nation of, of, of Europe and go to the Jewish populace that ran the banks, ran the businesses, and say, Hey, have you ever thought about relocating to the Middle East and reforming Israel? What? Are you kidding? There's no way. I mean, we're going to leave, we, we we run the retail industry, we run the banking industry, we run the cinematography industry. Why would we do that? And yet the evil that, the evil that Hitler was in doing what he did in those six years of the Holocaust, and in 1947, what happened? The emergence, the emergence of Israel. And what one man meant for the absolute demolition and eradication and genocidal target of the people of of Israel, God said, I have a plan for you. Like, you can't imagine. And Israel's been restored. You see, at 1967, there was a six-day war. Jordan, Egypt, and Syria team up to invade Israel. They're ten times of strength. They invade Israel. They push in against Israel. Israel pushes back, and within six days, Six days, Israel doubles its size of its country and wins the war. There are historical records of armored columns of tanks breaking down, gas problems, logistical problems, things falling apart, couldn't get uh, avalanche in a mountain pass, you name it. Does God still do amazing things? He does. And guess what? You're just as important as the nation of Israel. You have been given order over as the, as the title of brother and sister imagine that you have been you have been called not just a son and daughter but you have been called a brother and a sister in christ what he will do for you and the power he will he will make happen for you is waiting for you but don't use god as 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 a superstitious opportunity to simply say well i think because i have my bible because i've done this no it's an interaction and recognizing the power of who god is that he can accomplish the mountains that counselors can't, that spouses cannot help, that parents cannot help, and that the church cannot help, or a pastor doesn't know what to do. The power of God exists in that relationship with you. There is no power of God's coming through me and going to you. I have none. I don't give a blessing on a marriage. I get up there and I talk about marriage. I am no mediator. I have no spiritual power. No one does. No pastor has spiritual authority over you. None. Their whole role is to read the word of God, preach the word of God, and to be your servant. That is the, the power of God that exists is between you and God. You allowing and seeing the power of what God can do. And he will. And so, they went out and they placed these stones out there, which Joshua had done, and these stones as a memorial, to the greatness of God. Um, yesterday, a man shared uh, about his son who had been incredibly involved in, a, in an accident. We were at an event yesterday, and and he brought his three boys, and his son was in a wheelchair, and who had suffered a horrendous accident. This accident had um, left basically, I think, Carrie, he had one arm moving and a, maybe a leg moving a little bit, has not heard his son speak in four years. His son was 16 years old on a jet ski accident, went from being a rising football star to someone confined to a wheelchair in almost a reclined position the rest of his life. You know, you look over this good-looking young boy who just has not the ability to walk or to talk, and he, he's, the father said this, the mantra in our family is always this, God is God and God is good. And, you know, there had there wasn't one of us out there. I didn't think that sat there and thought, "You sure you can, you sure you can say that without stretching it a little bit?" All he could do was talk about the goodness. Oh man, if his tube didn't hit this, he. If this didn't happen, if the tube didn't protect him where he could breathe, he, he kept looking at all these positives. I mean, folks, sorry, I just brought myself down from the pulpit as who, what a pastor is. I'm going to get worse than that. I'm sitting there thinking, how could you not scream out to God to go, why didn't you just give him an extra two or three inches and not hit the dock? But you see, that man has tapped into the power of God. He has had a moment with God where God has discussed with him things that he's not discussed with me. And he said this, that God is good. Are you living a life where you can say at the end of every story that you tell of yourself, and God is good. If you were to give your testimony, is God the hero? There's people who don't know how to give a testimony. I've heard that. Sometimes people get up and talk about themselves and get done thinking that was their moment. But the reality is, listen for a testimony where God is threaded out, God is good. God did this. God did this. Everything I do in my life, away from the power of the Holy Spirit, as far as a decision, I'm not talking talk about fun things and activities, and I'm talking about decisions. If you ever want to see me have a bad day in church, you ready? Pull me aside. It has nothing to do with the power of salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit, or the power of the cross. It's because I'll have had a bad day based on a discussion of small things. Because the prioritization went off. You want to split a marriage? It's going to be over an argument over the smallest thing. You want to divide a church? It's going to be the most minuscule thing. When the eyes fall off of the most important things of, the, of salvation and redemption and sanctification and the power of the Holy Spirit, you watch what happens. But when all eyes are focused on that, you see something. Humility comes in. Forgiveness comes in. And then, by the way, have you noticed a similar thread? The power of God comes in. In the same way God said, this is how I want you to fight. I want you to confess your sins. Acknowledge the power of who I am. And then we'll win because I'll be there with you. Imagine if we fought every discouragement and battle that way. Say, God, I don't deserve to get fixed. I'm messed up. I'm jacked up. Here I am. But I know you're powerful. I know you're amazing. And I know you can do anything. Imagine the power that God will give you a life where people at the end of their life will say this, this person didn't live for tradition, they didn't live because of expectations, they didn't live because they were, they they based themselves on a system to say I'm deserving they lived because they wanted to make it known that God is good four chapters we brush through them but don't let it be just a historical lesson Let it be one where we recognize all the time we're not careful. We'll fall into superstition. We'll fall into tradition. I beg you, fall into the will of God and the power of God. And get ready. You teach us some things. Show us some things. You're safer in God's will than you are in traffic on Dale Mabry out of God's will. I guarantee it. With that being said, there's two groups we always say and we always acknowledge. A group of you who know you're believers, you take away from this, where can I tap into the power of God that's waiting for you? Remember, the power of God was given to you. Specifically, not just others around you. But for those of you who've never received that power, never experienced the power of what God can do, never shown you the blessings that God has in, in for you, the designer of life that has a design for you, and you're no longer going to just going to read a script that someone's given you in the background, but to give you a script, if ever you think this is the life I have to live, get that out of your, life, get, get that out of your mind. Because you're still operating on the power of you. The power of God is greater than that then I would say this, you have a friend that brought you. And if you didn't, that's a believer, then gladly come to one of us. But that friend could be the greatest minister and greatest expositor of the word of God for you. And I would hope you would talk to that friend about receiving the Lord as your savior. There's no magical prayer. There's no certain words it's a condition of the heart to receive the Lord as your Savior. A confession of your sins, an acknowledgement of the power of God, and a sacrifice, what he did on the cross to die for us, and to raise again on the third day. And you just watch the power of God that will move in your life. Would you pray with me? In Jesus, thank